I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. As the director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of the famed book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is used to being a target of opprobrium and book bans. His newest book is certain to run afoul of the numerous state laws seeking to squelch necessarily uncomfortable conversations involving race in classrooms. It's a children's book called Magnolia Flower, the first of six books that will adapt the writing of author Zora Neale Hurston, a star of the Harlem Renaissance and African-American folklore. In this conversation first recorded on September 14th for Washington Post Live, Dr. Kendi talks in depth about what motivated this project and why the latest push to ban books isn't new. As someone who has studied really the history of what we now call book banning, you know, as someone who has has studied all sorts of efforts to indoctrinate children into thinking that a particular race is superior or inferior, and, and, and simultaneously calling those forms of indoctrination as, as education. I think what's happening now for me is both normal and tragic. Magnolia Flower marks the first of six books you'll adapt from the writings of Zora Neale Hurston in partnership with her descendants. For our viewers who might be unfamiliar, who was Zora Neale Hurston and what drew you to her work? So Zora Neale Hurston was a, a, a legendary, really leading light of, of the Harlem Renaissance, this incredible explosion of, of, of Black uh, creativity in the 1920s and 1930s. She's most known for her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which was published in the late 1930s. But she's also was a folklorist. She collected rural Black folklore. She also was an anthropologist. And, and of course, a short story writer. And I, I personally just wanted children to have access to the, to the greatness of Zora Neale Hurston, the stories that she told and the folklore that she collected. So more generally, Dr. Kendi, what appeals to you about African-American folklore? It's to me, this sort of, when, we, when I think of folklore, whether it's African-American folklore or the folklore of other groups, I'm thinking about the stories that people share that's reflective of their culture, that's reflective of their philosophy, that's reflective of the joy and and pain and humor uh, and banter. Uh, It's really reflective of a people. And so to be able to convey that or introduce children to that folklore, you know, is exciting through Zora Neale Hurston. We should tell folks who are watching and, and, and listeners that you are kind enough, to, you're in, tra- in transit, you're coming to us from an airport. So if they hear something in the background that isn't your voice, that's what's, that's what's going on. Let's talk more about Zora Neale Hurston. She was writing a century ago, but what is it about our present circumstances that make her writing so important and resonant today? So she once, she once wrote, I am not tragically colored. Uh, she wanted to show and tell stories that allowed the American people, that even allowed Black people to see that despite the pain, despite the atrocities and, and the violence, Black people were still able to find love and to find joy. 
And I think in this moment, where I know many of us adults are really struggling with the tragedies of our time, and of course, our kids are, are feeling that anxiety, feeling that pain, feeling that fear, it, it, it's a time where we need stories that, that convey, despite pain, we're still going to find times of joy and love. And I think that was sort of indicative of particularly the story of Magnolia Flower. Um, what do you hope parents and children get or, or learn, take away from this book, this series? Wow. So much, Jonathan. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that uh, certainly children and, and parents uh, are able to receive a, a beautiful love story as, as told by a mighty river to a, to a dancing brook. I, I hope that, that people are able to think about the experience of Afro-Indigenous people like Magnolia. I, I hope that people are able to learn about history. Uh, the, 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 the story is set or starts really before the Civil War transitions, during the Civil War and after it. So I, I'm hoping it allows our children to ask us questions and, and for those children and parents to, to seek out answers together. I have a lot of hopes, <laughs> John. So, well, you know, it's interesting you bring up that it, you hope that it brings up questions for, for children. Like what? Like what was slavery? Um, like how did Black people and, and, and other people uh, find joy and love during slavery? Uh, why was it that, what was the trail of tears? Why were Native people driven from their land? Um, why is it that after the Civil War, in many ways, Black people felt that they were driven back towards freedom? Those are the questions that, that I hope kids would ask, kids will ask, and I'm already trying to prepare answers because I, I suspect they're coming from my daughter. <laughs> well, speaking of your daughter, who's very cute, by, by the way, uh, as we saw in the in the intro video, what questions has she asked? So my my daughter is still uh, it's just incredibly captivated by the illustrations from Magnolia Flower. Love is wise. They just did an incredibly just an incredible job in in designing and and creating and illustrating Magnolia Flower. So most of my daughter's questions have been about the illustrations, which have mainly been, how did Love is Wise do this? Like, how did she create so much beauty? Uh, she loves the flowers in particular. My, my daughter really already has a green thumb and really loves nature. So most of the questions has been about the illustrations. And that's typically how it goes with my daughter. Most of the questions start about the illustrations. And then as she hears the story over and over again, uh, typically the the, the, the questions turn to some of the points in the story. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I asked you what questions um, you were hoping children would ask. Now, what happens when children ask those questions? How should parents respond? Well, I don't think that parents should feel uncomfortable. I, I think when, when, when our kids ask us questions about a, a difficult, or even a joyful period that we that we don't know about, that we should use it as a as an opportunity to say to our child, 
you know, let's go to the library on Saturday and and learn about this. I don't know the answer. So to almost practice for the child, the, the, the process of research, you know, and learning, or even if the child asks about, well, I don't understand, you know, about slavery. This was an incredibly pivotal period in the nation's history. And so at some point, our children are going to learn about it. Why not learn about slavery in the comfort of one's home and in the context of a love story like Magnolia Flower? Well, it's interesting you say that our children are going to, are going to learn about it. And when I hear the word learn, I think in a classroom. But as you and I both know, that even that is under attack. I mean, the new school year has just begun. We have to discuss some of the efforts by some state legislatures to restrict teaching about certain topics. Uh, in a recent analysis, PEN America found that 19 states have laws targeting discussions of uh, race, gender, um, and United States history. 36 other states introduced 137 similar bills in, in 2022, marking a significant increase compared to the 54 bills proposed last year. You yourself have had a book or two banned, uh, although they have helped with, with your book sales. It's still troubling. Can you put these decisions by these state legislatures and school boards to ban books and restrict ideas in some historical context? Put that into, into historical context for us. Well, Jonathan, a century ago, there were organized efforts uh, to ban books, particularly books that told the truth about, about the Civil War or even about slavery. It was rare for public schools in states like Mississippi and Florida to officially uh, allow students, including Black students, uh, to, to learn that the, that the Civil War was about slavery, to learn that Jim Crow was maintaining racism. And even 200 years ago, during the enslavement era, enslavers routinely banned abolitionist literature uh, in the South. Indeed, they banned schools for, for children uh, in the South because they did not want children to learn the truth about, about slavery, even poor white children. And so there's a long history of segregationists and, and, and enslavers uh, banning books. Um, so that, that um, answers my follow-up, which I forgot to ask, which is, this isn't new, what we're going through and what you've been, what you've been the target of. It isn't new. And, and I think as someone who has studied really the history of, of what we now call book banning, you know, as someone who has, has studied all sorts of efforts to indoctrinate children into thinking that a particular race is superior or inferior and, and, and simultaneously calling those forms of indoctrination as, as education. You know, I think what's happening now for me is both normal and tragic, if you, if you understand what I mean. And, and, and I personally think that, that as someone who didn't actually read as much when I was in, in middle school and high school, as I wish I would have, to, to think in particular that those young people uh, are having books taken out of their hands 
which can potentially, it could be that book that could propel a life of reading and understanding, you know, and joy. I, I just think it's incredibly tragic. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the banning of your books um, is part of the larger uh, thing that's happening in, in this country, the uproar over critical race theory or what people think is critical race theory, the 1619 Project, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as I mentioned, your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, one of the, the books that people point to. I'm wondering what you make of, of the, the such strong reactions by many folks in this country, uh, in particular white folks in this country, over calls for a reckoning with our history and calls for racial calls for greater racial equity. What's what's fascinating? We we were just talking specifically about the history of of, of and, and now thinking about it within a larger context. Going back to the enslavement era. You had many pro-slavery intellectuals and other enslavers who made the case, particularly by the 19, 1830s and 1840s, that abolitionists were anti-Southern, that abolitionists were indeed anti-American. Similarly, you had Jim Crow segregationists who argued that civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr. were these outside agitators who were messing up the amicable relations between the races. And, and now, today, you have those who are saying that, that, that those who are pushing for the end of racism, those who are being anti-racist, are actually anti-American, are actually anti-white. It's the same line of thinking. It's the that, that unfortunately, uh, Americans have experienced, and so to then you have people who don't know what to believe <laughs> um, <laughs> because they're being told opposite things by 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 two different sides, and so I, that's why I encourage people to figure out things for themselves. You know, I want to talk about um, uh, something else. It's related to your book, and that's, I mean, the, the importance of your book, which I have sitting right here next to me. Um, you know, in in books. It's important for children to be able to see themselves uh, when they open a book or go to or go to a movie. Um, it's important for actually all of us, not just children, to see ourselves in the Atlantic. You recent you recently wrote that like books, dolls too can be great teaching tools. Tools. Talk more about that. Well, I mean, let's say for instance, if you are a parent. Of, of, of a white child and, and, and that white child primarily goes to a predominantly white school. And let's say you want to start talking to that child about race. Let's say you want to make sure that child does not connect, let's say, dark skin color with things that are bad and, and light skin color with things that are good that, that kids by elementary school, if not preschool, are already unfortunately doing. How can you do that as a parent? How can you go about teaching the child? You see these different skin colors? Though they look differently, they're both part of the same human rainbow. They're both equal. How can you do that? Or what can you use to do that? Dog this podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. 
And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. You know, you make a fascinating argument in, in that Atlantic piece. Um, you say we can follow the history of school segregation through the evolution of American toys. Connect those dots. Yes, I mean, I, I think that recently, for instance, when I say recently over the last few decades, there has been an effort to diversify American toys, to ensure that toys are reflective of all the different people from different skin colors and, 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 and religions and body sizes. But uh, by the 1950s in particular, when there was an effort and people believed that assimilation was going to bring about racial progress. And what I mean, Jonathan, by assimilation, this the efforts of all peoples of color to be white and look white. What actually happened at that point is there was an effort to essentially make all the toys look uh, like white people. Before that, there were more effort, there were more, quote, different looking toys, but they were, those toys were carrying racist stereotypes, particularly in the 1890s when you started to have this mass manufacturing of toys. So you had uh, toys that depicted Chinese people in a stereotypical way and black people and Irish people. And, and so, you know, I think in many ways we can understand the way people are thinking about race uh, by how toys are being created and marketed. You know, you cite two studies prominently in, in your article, um, and I'm sure people listening to this conversation, their mind immediately goes to one that's really famous. Uh, the first being the Clark's survey in 1940, uh, and then Margaret Beale Spencer's survey in 2010. What were what were their findings? Talk about those two studies. Sure. So, in in both studies, you had psychologists. Social, social scientists who, who brought children together. In, in, the, in the Clark's study in 1940, it was just black children. And in, in, in the uh, study more recently, uh, the, the social scientists brought both white and black children. And they put dolls before them, uh, a doll that depicted somebody as black, a, a doll that looked white, and just asked those children, uh, those young children basic questions. Which doll do you prefer? Which doll is nice? And, and what they found in both cases is that children, both black, uh, black children in, in 1940s and black and white children recently preferred the white doll. Consider that the nice doll. Consider that the better doll. And, and, and 
recently, uh, the, the researcher found that white children were even more likely to uh, have what the researcher called pro-white bias than, than black parents are more likely to talk to their kids about race and protect them from messages that would cause them to connect positivity with a skin color. So then, so then what, do, what did they attribute their findings to? In 1940, I, I, I get it, but in 2010, what, 70 years later? What's feeding that? It, it's, it's hard to say something definitively, but let me give a, a major example. If you're a child, you're five years old, you're eight years old, and you could live in a community with widespread racial disparities where black and brown people are disproportionately impoverished. And then no one is talking to you, or it's rare for people to talk to you about why that racial inequality exists. And, and then you have messages on television and other places where you're seeing, let's say, white people more often or in better or more positive positions, it could cause you as a child to think that white people uh, have more because they are more. And then when you look at your schools and the curriculum and, 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 and what writers and what pictures are being displayed, literally white people are more in the curriculum. So I'm saying this all to say, by us not talking to our children about uh, race and racism, by us not actively ensuring that our children is seeing a diverse uh, segment of people in their schools, in their literature, in their media, it can cause a child to have pro-white bias. You know, you, you've encountered a version uh, of this, um, particularly the, the doll stories that we've been talking about at your daughter's daycare. Uh, tell us what you discovered there and how it fits into your sound argument, because we've talked about this before, about the, about the quote-unquote smog of white supremacy. Yes, so, yeah, Jonathan, when my daughter, I think, was about one years old, she was going to a, to a daycare, and my, my wife and I typically alternate picking her up. And on a particular day, it was me, my, my job to pick her up. When I came and I noticed that she was playing with a white doll, and, you know, I didn't think much of it, you know, picked her up, we left. She was a little upset to, to, to have to leave the, the white doll. Uh, but the next day she was playing with that same doll and she was even more resistant to leaving and no longer playing with that doll. And as the days went by, a whimper became a cry. A cry became a tension tantrum because she didn't want to go home and stop playing with this white doll. And so my wife and I, we were trying to figure out what's going on here. And by the fifth day, when my wife and I both came, she actually uh, tossed the doll away and sprinted to, to hug us because she loves when we both pick her up. But on that day, I actually went around to look at the, the toy box. And I found that all of the dolls were pretty much white. And I'm mentioning that, Jonathan, because I actually thought my, 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 my wife and I were thinking, does she have a preference for the white doll? Come to find out, she didn't have any other choice. Hmm. And just to be clear, 
You don't live, do you live in the South? Where do you live? This was in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of in the South, but this isn't, we're not talking about a situation that happened in rural Georgia or rural Alabama or rural Mississippi where some people would think, oh, maybe that's where this is happening. No, this is something, this smog of white supremacy uh, that you've written about and you talk about, it's it smog. It, talk about the smog because the, the analogy, it permeates everything. You can't see it. I think that's, that's part of the, the difficulty. And I, I personally study racist ideas, ideas that, that, con, that convey to people and people believing that, let's say I mentioned earlier, that it's not racist policies that's causing black and brown people to be disproportionately impoverished. Uh, we're taught through this mod that it's because they don't want to work as hard. You know, it's not racist policies that are leading to black people uh, dying at higher rates at the hands of police. No, we're taught that they're just reckless with the police. It's it's not uh, racist policies proportionately incarcerated. No, we're we're taught that they're more criminal-like and, and violent. All of those ideas, you know, are the smog that that people are taking in, including our children. All right, this is a perfect segue because I want to play devil's advocate here and sort of channel some of the counter arguments um, that I'm sure you've heard that I've heard. A few recent studies illustrated deep-seated racism in this country. One was around COVID-19, where it was shown that the more the media covered racial disparities around COVID-19, the less concerned or supportive white people became about protective measures. There was also a recent study on the racial politics surrounding welfare in the United States. To sum up their conclusions, the authors write that, quote, racial animosity in the U.S. makes redistribution to the poor who are disproportionately black unappealing to many voters. Looking at these two examples, if we are outcome driven, then would it make more sense to minimize or at least not increase the salience of race? in order to get the best results for people of color? Devil's advocate question. I think that's an incredibly important question. And, and let me give an example. About a, a decade ago, there became an awareness that there were too many children, even in preschool, who were being suspended and expelled. And, and so they became an effort are particularly led by, by the Obama administration to reduce, to, to stop using that punitive measure, you know, when children are, are acting out. And, and, and so it actually led to a pretty significant decline in, in the number of children, preschoolers who are being suspended and expelled. But you know what actually didn't happen? There wasn't a closing, a significant closing in the disparities of black between black and white, even preschool girls who were being suspended, because there was no focus on that. The focus was only on suspension rates in general. And so I think this is the challenge, because on the one hand, if we do not talk about racial disparities and put in place specific policies and practices that can eliminate them, if not reduce them, then they're not going to do it on their own.
But then if we talk about racial disparities, it's going to cause a certain segment of Americans uh, to be uninterested in those policy reforms we want to put forth. And I think this is part of the reason why we're still facing this issue uh, you know, of racism in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Kendi, you were last on Washington Post Live a month after January 6, 2021, the insurrection. Have you become more optimistic or less optimistic about the future of democracy in America? So, Jonathan, I'm not, I don't want to dodge your question, but I truly try not to answer that question. Like, I try not to measure my optimism or pessimism based on what's happening in society. And I suspect I do that because as, as someone who's closely following, in this case, attacks on, 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 on the maintenance or the establishment you know, of a multiracial democracy, it's hard for me to not potentially be pessimistic. Or, or someone who is seeing that two years after the murder of George Floyd, we, we still don't have you know, federal policy that can protect black people uh, and brown people and even all of us from, from police violence. It, it can cause me to be pessimistic. But I also know if I, rem- if I, if I get pessimistic, then it's gonna sort of sap my fuel to push for a different type of nation, to, to push for an equitable and just sort of society. So I, I try not to uh, become more passive or, or, or I'm sorry, sorry uh, pes- pessimistic or optimistic as a result of what's been happening. I would think, I mean, I, I, get, I, get your an- I get your answer, or I should say non-answer answer. Um, but do you take hope um, and derive some modicum of optimism by the incremental, as small as they may might be, incremental gains that have happened. And by so that I, I mean do. over the course of our history. So yes, I actually do. I try to sort of swim in hope from my reading of history, and and there have been things that we as a people have accomplished, whether it's the elimination of chattel slavery, you know, a host of other things that people thought was impossible. And that sort of gives me hope. And and I constantly have to go back to the pages of history uh, to to sort of refuel on that hope, particularly when when times uh, seem dire. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, director of the Boston University University Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of Magnolia Flower. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.